If you were to have the opportunity to sit down with Jesus and have a cup of coffee or a meal, what would you ask him? Anything you want. What do you want him to do for you? What would you like to ask Christ to do? Maybe just an answer to a question. And let's just pretend for a moment he's not going to give you some cryptic, parabolic answer like he confused the disciples with, right? He just straight up tells you what to do. He's going to give you a specific answer. What would you ask him? What do you want of him? What do you want in your relationship with Christ? What would you like him to do for you? Open your Bible or your technology to Mark chapter three, uh, Mark chapter 1. As we continue our study in Mark chapter 1, the gospel of Mark, we have been introduced to Christ through a prophecy. Following the prophecy, we had the identification of this God-man. The heavens open, the Spirit of God descends, the voice from heaven says, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Prophecy, identification, followed by his authentication and his authority as he goes and performs miracles and heals people and teaches in the synagogues, he is then not only identified as the Son of God, he has the authority as the Son of God, and this authenticates who he is. Now, in this text we're going to look at this morning, <coughs> from Simon's mother-in-law being healed to the leper being healed, we're going to see this continuation of who is this Jesus, how has he been identified, how does he have authority, and what did he come to do <coughs> with that authority? Chapter 1, verse 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. Mark's word immediately, twice in these verses. The movement of the story is hard to miss. From chapter 121, he's at Capernaum. He goes into the synagogue, and this is the beginning of Sabbath. Uh, we know this site very well. In fact, when you go to Israel, we'll take you to Capernaum. And there is a synagogue, a white alabaster synagogue, built on top of the synagogue that Jesus spoke at. This is a 100% plate. We know for sure Jesus was at the synagogue. And you can literally throw a rock from the synagogue to Peter's house. And where Peter's house is today, uh, the Catholics built this bizarre looking, I call it the James Bond Church, over top of the site. Uh, it does two things. It's, it's sort of there, but it protects the site as well. And you can see, which I would give a 70% likelihood, that was the very house of Peter in the first century. So they've left the synagogue. We learn, obviously, Peter's married. We sometimes forget the obvious, but some of the disciples did have wives, and Peter certainly was married. This is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this is the so-called Jesus Triangle. I've mentioned this several times in the Gospel of Mark. Sixty-plus percent of his life occurs on that northern area of the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum is right there on the northern tip of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. Now notice the verbal movement, the way Mark describes coming to Peter's mother-in-law. He came to her, he raised her up, taking her by the hand, fever left her, she waited on them. He came to her. Jesus is being bidden by the disciple to come. He raised her up. The term is used, physically it means just to pull somebody up, but 13 times in your New Testament it's used of a resurrection. 
So we start to see these double meanings of some of the words Mark is using. Secondly, taking her by the hand. Obviously, that means he raised her up by the hand. But the word also means to go into something and take control of the situation. If you're a parent and you have little children fighting, you go in and take control of the situation. You might physically separate them and put them in their different rooms and say, stay in there for a while till the timer goes off or till I tell you you can come out. You take control of a situation. Thirdly, uh, fourthly, the fever left her. This is a fascinating word. Uh, obviously, on the surface, the fever's gone, but the word is also used for forgiveness. So you see these words Mark is piling up on each other. He came to her. He raised her up. He took her by the hand, took control of the situation. He, the fever left her. He forgave her. And lastly, she waited on them. If you have a cross-reference in your Bible or margin notes under that word, you might see the word served. When she waited on them, it's the same word diakoneo that Mark is so fond of. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's the same word he's using here. It's all interlaced in the gospel. Mark doesn't want you to miss these things. And he's a genius the way the Spirit uses him as he writes these stories. Now, if nothing else, the miracles are recorded and we've got this unnamed group of people, these masses that are coming, these demons that are being cast out. And I think it's helpful, again, uh, to remind us that when Christ heals someone, whether it's a fever or cast out a demon, he is acting above nature. He did not uh, supply her antibiotics, uh, anti-inflammatories, drink a lot of fluids, and in a few days you'll feel better as a doctor. He literally removes this instantaneously and completely from her. Now, a fever is one thing, but we'll see him heal a leper next, and that's quite different. Um, I had a young man two weeks ago come up to me and ask me a question basically about science and the Bible. How do you reconcile these two? Great question. I am one of these stupid, moronic, ignoramus people that believes the earth is 10,000 years or less old. I know some of you think it's millions of years old. That's fine. You can pray for me. I'll pray for you. Um, <laughs> we measure light by billions of years. So, Michael, the earth's got to be billions of years old. And old earth, obviously, because Christians believe that, that's a fine argument when we view it horizontally. If we use laws of physics, biology, and chemistry, we repeat something. We can repeat it again and again and again to show us veracity. That's true. But God is supernatural. He's above nature. God is the one who placed chemistry, laws of physics, biology in motion. He didn't make Adam into an infant who grew. He was a full-grown man. He didn't make the garden with trees that had to grow for generations before they produced fruit. He didn't make little animals. They were full-grown animals he named. God creates something the way he designs it. He is supernatural. If he cannot do those things, he cannot give a man new eyes in John 9, who is congenitally blind. He can't heal leprosy. He can't touch a fever. He can't make a storm calm. Nor can he raise Lazarus from the dead. So don't let the world or science teach you theology. They're fine grist to study within their framework. And I applaud them heartily. But when you come to the scripture, you've got to ask yourself the question, is he the sovereign creator of all or not? I don't want science to define the God of the universe. Because it cannot. All that was for free. 
science and nature exist, Jesus is going to move outside science and nature. He's going to create. He's going to die. He's going to come back from the dead. You can't reproduce that in a laboratory. Well, the question becomes for the reader, for the listener, how do you respond when the Messiah comes on board and he heals a fever or casts out a demon or cures leprosy? Now, Scripture is silent, or we might argue just doesn't detail the stories of these people after things happened. We don't know if Peter's mother-in-law became this, this fervent believer in Christ and a, a zealous woman of God. The scripture doesn't tell us that. Part of it, I think, is helpful. By the time we get to Romans, of course, we see Paul giving us names of people who are faithful servants. But we don't always know the story of what happens to someone after they come to Christ. And if you're like me, you kind of wonder, well, what, what happened? What happened to that leper? Well, we have the lepers who were healed and the one that comes back in Luke. But here we're just going to read one. Um, Cindy's home when she was a girl, uh, after she went to college, moved back home for a while, and uh, her childhood home, and uh, she was getting a job moving into her own place, and their house caught on fire, had a terrible house fire, a two-story house, took out most of the second floor and part of the, uh, the uh, rest of the house. And when I started dating Cindy, everything was talked about. That was before the fire or after the fire. Well, that was before the fire, and even until they, they passed away a few years ago, it was, that was before the fire, and that was after the fire. Everything was time-stamped by that one event. I would suggest when you came to Christ before the fire, how's your life different after the fire? You can go on about your way and your manner without any substantial change after the fire. Or you can say, wow, and you can really change things after the fire. So we don't know, and I think to some degree the reader is left to not wonder what happens to Peter's mother-in-law or to the leper, but how do we respond to the life-changing event that Christ came into your life when you trusted in Christ and Christ alone? The prophesied one, the identified one, the authoritative one has come. He's healing, he's preaching, he's casting out demons. His ministry continues, verse 32. When evening came... After the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Now, Mark's record, even though it's short, is very precise. Why does he say when evening came after the sunset? Either one of those would be sufficient. In Jewish law, a Shabbat or Sabbath occurred, we would call it today, Friday when the sun goes down till Saturday when the sun goes down. That's Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom, you say in Israel. Have a peaceful, wonderful Sabbath. So when the sun goes down. Now, you know uh, daylight savings, for example, time change. The sun goes down at different times of the day. So it isn't just say in the evening. He's being specific for the Jew. In the evening when it came, when the sun set. So in chapter 121, we have the beginning of Shabbat, and Jesus is going to teach in the synagogue. Then now we have the end of Shabbat in chapter 1, verse 32, when the sun had set. The primary residence around Capernaum, probably conservatively 
2,000, 3,000 max in Capernaum proper in antiquity. The area around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, uh, one could argue up to 10, maybe even 20,000 occupants in that area during the time of Christ, maybe more. The Decapolis, what we, we talk about Middle Tennessee or the state of Tennessee. If you're from Dallas, the Metroplex, you talk about these large areas. That'd be like the Decapolis, means 10 cities, but it's loosely meaning this larger area. But Christ's ministry is beginning. Remember Mark's chronicle. He doesn't have a baby. Jesus is 30 years old in chapter 1 on the scene starting a ministry. And we've missed a year of, of the Judean ministry. Mark jumps right into the story where he's in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. They're bringing many who are ill and demon-possessed. Don't, don't make too much of it, but there is a distinction between ill and demon possession here. Yes, sometimes a person can be demon-possessed and be ill, but the differentiation and distinction is important in the text. Both Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke say that all were healed. Mark's account doesn't mention that detail. Again and again, Jesus is going to prevent the demons from talking when they are healed. Look again at verse 34. He was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Now, there are all kinds of commentaries and scholars who have opinions on why. Some believe that when an exorcism occurred in antiquity, you had to name the demon. And you'll see Jesus having a dialogue with demons. You know some of the Bible well enough to know those stories where he talks to the demons. Here, Jesus doesn't let him speak. Now, we could speculate forever as to why Jesus doesn't let them speak. I've got a theory. That's all it is, a theory. I don't think Jesus wanted the demons to announce who Messiah was. That's not their place. Yes, they recognize him. It's going to take people a while to recognize who this Jesus is. But Jesus is not going to give uh, Satan the opportunity nor the privilege of saying this is Messiah. That's my theory. It could be wrong. You can come up with a better one or you can disagree. That's okay. The temporal Messiah was not here to be a miracle worker only. He came for a much bigger reason. He didn't come just to remedy all human diseases. Jesus neither forces himself on people to heal them. In fact, as I read the scripture, there's only one occasion, and that's John 9, my favorite man in all the Bible, that is an object lesson. He's just a blind guy sitting there who's congenitally blind, and when they come, disciples come on the scene, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus' response is, neither, but that the glory of God might be revealed. And that guy is just an object lesson. Everyone else comes to Jesus. Or people bring someone to Jesus for help. And I think that's an important point not to miss. These people are coming after Shabbat. They're not going to violate the Sabbath law. They're good, pious Jews. They've heard about this guy who's healing people. Can he really do it? What's the harm in trying? Let's go see what this man will do. Jesus then withdraws after this day. Verse 35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Again, we might miss the obvious from 121 to verse 34. This is arguably the busiest day, uh, one of the busiest days in Jesus' ministry as it's recorded um, it's interesting that Jesus withdraws in chapter 1, verse 5. He goes to a secluded, private place. We read later, as was his habit, he would get away. This is, however, 
one, the first of only three times in the Gospel of Mark, where Mark records Jesus praying. Now, for any Bible reader or Bible student, that really intrigues me. I go, in all this Gospel count, you only talk about Jesus praying three times. I want to know why and where and when. Well, it's interesting. The first one here is after this long day of ministry. The second one is in Mark chapter 6, 46, and that's when he prays over the loaves and the fish. That's the only public one we have. And the last one is chapter 14, Gethsemane. So think of the literary structure. The first time he prays is after a day of, let's just call it busy ministry. He's up, up until late at night healing people. Then he sneaks out under the cover of the dawn darkness to get away from the crowds. We're going to see some humor in a minute on that story. And then the next time we see him praying is Gethsemane when he's wrestling with his father, not my will, but your will be done. Interesting Mark's record. Well, the secluded place, he's praying there. What does it tell us about Jesus and his relationship to his father? Did, did Jesus need to go do this? Did he need to get away to pray? He's the God-man, for goodness sakes. He can skip his devotions. I mean, what is he going to do? Yeah, I said that. <laughs> you going to talk to himself? He's the God-man, and he wouldn't consider not being with his father. I don't want to shame or guilt anybody because shame and guilt don't motivate, they don't help, they just make you feel unhappy or mad. You know, it doesn't do anything for you. Um, many of us in this room would say, not all perhaps, you know, I wish my prayer life was better. I wish my walk with Christ was more intimate, fill in the blank. I wish I prayed uh, better than the rote prayer I'm going to pray in about 40 minutes over lunch. I wish it was a little different. Um, I, I can't tell you um, how or why. I can just tell you uh, my story and that um, if I don't get up first thing in the morning, uh, shower, shave, get dressed, and go right to it. And that's one reason I, I, I tease you relentlessly about using a cheater's Bible. But the reason is that if I get into this stuff, I get off into email and it's gone. The technology takes on its own life. So I use a, a, a real Bible and color pens and pencils. I like to color it when I read it. And if I don't do it then, it never happens. It's not because I have to, it's because I get to. It's not because I should, it's because I can. It's not an obligation of duty and being a good Christian. It's an opportunity to spend time with the God of the universe who loves me. Well, I don't have time. I'm too busy. I'm in school. I'm, you know, I, I work two shifts, whatever. Um, some of you are in the medical profession, and you come in here in your scrubs. I'm always humbled that you come to church in your scrubs. I think it's phenomenal. I mean, you might sleep. That's okay, too. But, you know, you've worked two shifts or whatever, and you come here. Some of you are firemen and women, police, EMTs. You worked a shift, and you come here, and you're exhausted, but you come here. And that always impresses and humbles me that the fellowship is important to you for whatever reason. Good for you. Um, you don't have to. You got a good re I worked two shifts at Vanderbilt last night. I don't want to go to church. I'm too tired to go to church. Jesus gets up under the cover of mourning to get away from the crowds to go to a solitary place to be alone with his father. Who do we think we are? You, you think your life is more efficient, more effective. You get more done because you do it on your own without Christ? Of course we don't. What are we, how are we deluding ourselves? How are we 
missing an opportunity to fellowship with the God of the universe who loves you. I need that recalibration right at the get-go, or it never is going to happen during the day. It just won't. Now, some of you are night owls, and you have your devotions at night. Good for you. Um, the sun came up in the morning. I don't know. So I, I just think mornings are better uh, with the Bible. So, um, but you, if you do it in the evening, good for you. The point is, are you in his word? If the God-man snuck away from the pressures of his day to spend time with his father, what does that say of your need and mine? Well, Jesus' mission continues, verse 36. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him, and they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. He went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. They searched for him. They're hunting for him. It's a, a unique word only found here in the Gospels. Hunting something down. Everybody's looking for you. You can see these poor disciples. They were up late at night. They had a long full day. They were there with Jesus, probably still at Peter's house. And, and they wake up and the lions are there. Where's Jesus? We've got to go hunt him down. People are looking for you. I love his reply. Let us go somewhere else. We're out of here. I'm not going to stand in line and do this all day. We have friends who were missionaries in uh, Erie and Jaya, Papua New Guinea, PNG area, uh, for 30 years translating a particular uh, Indian dialect. And they're both brilliant PhDs, and they went through a bunch of training. They became basically medics. And on Wednesdays at this one village, they would see people from the area. And at 6 in the morning, they'd wake up, and there'd be a line clear out the village of people with maladies waiting to see these two these are PhDs. These are the kind of doctors who really can't help anybody, right? Like me. They can't help any. Real doctors, some of your MDs, you can help people. Um, but they're pretend doctors. And they're, they're giving, you know, over-the-counter stuff and medications and cutting things off and whatnot that they can try to help. And they have a ham radio, no technology like today. Ham radio, they're talking to a guy who's talking to a guy who's talking to a doctor in the States, and they're giving them counsel on what to do with cases before you could send pictures of things. And they told me, we could do that every day, seven days a week. We could just see people who stand in line from the villages in PNG who heard that someone there was helping them. And that's great. But they were there to translate the Bible into a written language for a people group. And Jesus says, um, let us go somewhere else to the nearby towns that I may preach, for that is what I came for. Jesus did not come to be this religious, social, medical resource for people to solve their problems because fallen people are in a fallen context. Jesus came to solve the ultimate problem called sin. And that was where the gospel was ensconced. Now, some people like the word missional. I have this thing, you know me long enough, I hope, well, you may know me long enough to know that I'm a cynic at heart. I'm sorry. Um, you can pray for me that I'm less cynical as I get wiser and older. Uh, but I'm a cynic. And I hate Christianese and I hate Christian cliches. So just get it out there. I hate the word missional. Uh, it's not in the Bible, number one, so that cackles me. It's like spiritual formation. Why don't we just call it discipleship? That's what the Bible says, make disciples. It doesn't say let's be spiritually formed. Woo. Let's be missional. Woo. It's cool. It's clever. It'll be gone in a decade, praise God. Um, <laughs> 
Jesus is intentional and deliberate and he's on task. That's the point. He could have been a dispensary of healing people 24-7 clinic. I didn't come to do that. Yes, I can do that. I did not come to do that. I came to preach Caruso, a gospel that saves the ultimate condition. And so he moves then into the synagogues, verse 39, throughout Galilee. This could have been several weeks. Some believe it might have been up to months, but he would go to a, another area. There would be, depending on population in Israel, you had a certain population base. You had to have a certain number of men to have a synagogue. You had to have a certain number of dollars to get a Torah, and you had to put these pieces together. But we know there were multiple synagogues within this northern part of Galilee that Jesus would frequent. And so he goes there, and more than likely from Sabbath to Sabbath, Sabbath, he's teaching, and a, a, a male rabbi could come into a synagogue and open a scroll, and it was basically like a calendar. You read the reading for the day, and then Jesus would expound it. And so that's what he's doing for weeks or months. That's why he came. Verse 40, his ministry expands. A leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him. And saying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. He sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. He said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Only twice in the New Testament is leprosy addressed here and in Luke 17 with the ten lepers and the nine, one that comes back. Lepers were ritually unclean. This is not the modern-day Hansen's disease that's been uh, uh, defined in our lifetime. This leprosy in Leviticus chapter 14 was a category of dermatological issues. And frankly, it's very complicated. It's not simple to say what was and was not leprosy. The Levitical law in, in, in chapter 14, verses 2 to the end of chapter, discuss all the iterations of it. And if we go back to Hebrew and antiquity and what we know of the culture, it was all kinds of things. It could, be in a, it could be a mold, it could be in a building, it could be on cloth, it could be on your skin. And there are all kinds of different versions of, we might call it iterations of leprosy. It wasn't just one thing. So this leper, uh, what the, 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 the plan for a leper was he lived outside the community uh, in the synagogue. Some of them had a veiled screened area where they could come in and men could be part of a synagogue, but they had to be behind a scrim, so to speak, and they could not interact. They were unclean. It is the perfect picture of sin. It's defiled. It's unclean. It's a disease. It's outside the camp. And so the picture of leprosy was as hard to cure as it was to raise someone from the dead. The rabbis and Jesus underscore the same message. If you can cure leprosy, you can raise somebody from the dead. Meaning most people did not find a cure from the disease. Interestingly, Mark is the only one that records Jesus was moved with compassion. Also interesting, Mark's the only one that records that he was sternly warned. It's a unique phrase. He had compassion, but he warns the guy, which is an interesting picture of the God-man. He heals him completely. He is willing. If you're willing, he comes to him. If you're willing, he's willing. He cleanses him, and he's on his way. The stern warning, say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. 
Again, Leviticus chapter 14 and following will explain, if you are cleansed, you go to the priest who acted as the religious, political, sociological, medical authority of a community. It wasn't like today where we have a, you know, our system of government and health care. The priest and the Sadducees and scribes held all that power. I met a rabbi years ago who was basically an equivalent of an FDA inspector. He was a chemist and a, a medical doctor by training, and he was an FDA inspector for kosher foods in Israel. That was his job. So the law is interesting the way they look at these things. So you went to the priest, and the priest then said, yes, you're clean. And afterwards, you went and gave an offering to God to thank him for cleaning you. Cleaning being a, a broad term for being healed or right. Well, here we have a picture of Jesus saying, you follow the law. I'm going to heal you, but you follow the law. Go show yourself to the priest. Do what Moses said. Jesus did not come to overturn the law. He, in fact, fulfills the law. And we see him being a law-abiding Jew here at the time. Well, it's too good to be true. The poor leper can't keep his mouth shut. Verse 45, he went out and began to proclaim it freely. And to spread the news around, to such an extent, Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Irony's not lost on Mark, who records the story. He went out and began to proclaim it freely. The word proclaim is the same word Caruso, herald the gospel. Mark sees the proclamation as a double layer. He says, on the one hand, he's doing exactly what Jesus told him not to do, but he's proclaiming what Jesus did for him. So the gospel goes out even in this strange way. Why does Jesus tell him not to proclaim it? I would put it in the same category with the, the demons. There's a time where Jesus is going to introduce himself as Messiah, and now is not the time. From the human level, and the way we read Mark, Jesus now is in a bind. He can't go back to the city. He's got to go in the remote villages. From a sovereign viewpoint, this is all part of God's plan, all part of God's story. There's no plan B here. Uh, he's going to continue taking the message of the gospel elsewhere. Only twice in the Old Testament do we have leprosy cured. In Numbers chapter uh, 12, Miriam, who's leprous, and God cures her, and the uh, Naaman, the Syrian king, who is cured by dipping himself in the Jordan. Again, compared to raising the dead, both in Mark and Matthew and Luke's account of the record. Um, Jesus did not come to be the spiritual ibuprofen. He did not come to be the counselor to solve our problems as parenting. He did not come to make our marriages happier. He did not come to uh, make us more successful and healthy and wealthy and wise. He came to save us from our sins. And in Mark's gospel, the introduction of prophecy the identification and the authority that this Jesus has is then authenticated by his ability to do what none other had done before. To heal leprosy and to raise the dead and to give a guy a new pair of eyes, to speak to the storm and calm it, to multiply loaves and fish, to break the laws of physics, chemistry, science, to break the laws as we view them from a human level, to say, this is the God-man. He's not just a political, sociological, religious leader who's come to make your life as a Jew better. He's come to save you from your sins. What would you want of Jesus? What do you ask of Jesus? To put it very simply, is your salvation and mine merely to save our skin or to serve our Savior? The leper wanted his skin saved. 
He wanted to be clean from leprosy and be able to go back to his community. Let's imagine a family. If you're willing, you can clean me. You can make me well again. You can make me whole again. I'm willing. Don't tell anybody. He goes and tells everybody. I've said it till I know you're tired of me saying it, but I think the challenge of Western Christianity is we've woven in this notion that bigger, better, newer, healthy, things working out, People shouldn't die. Children shouldn't be abused. A shouldn't be a problem. All these things we worry about. Uh, my marriage, my, my husband, my wife, my children, all these things. We come to Jesus with the anticipation he's going to fix those things. And sometimes he does. And they're good and proper things to ask of Jesus. Don't hear me wrong. But is that all salvation is? Is I'm going to Pray and ply and scheme and try so that Jesus will answer the questions I want him to answer so my life will be more the way I would like it to be. Even when I say that, we all hear the right thing, right? That's a very inadequate view of salvation. He did not come just to save your skin. He came to serve you by dying in your place on your behalf instead of you to give you eternal life, forgiveness of sins, to clean you from your leprous unrighteousness, to make you right and clean before him so that you can have a relationship with and serve him. And the problem with Western Christianity is we get that servant part out of alignment and we think Jesus is here to serve us. And if I don't get the promotion, I don't get the job, I don't get that particular school, my marriage does fall apart. I don't find a better husband or wife on the next go-around. My children break my hearts. I have a parent with ALS, dementia. My father's a horrific abuser. I was hurt, I was wounded, I'm a victim. I lost loved ones in Afghanistan. Children should not have been harmed that's the fallen context, the fallen nature, the fallen world in which we live. It's level ground, men and women. It's level ground. Nobody escapes this. Another cheery sermon from Michael Easley. <laughs> Nobody escapes it. If your view is jaded by a horizontal, sinful view of the world, then you're going to live in a certain way. If your view of a broken, fallen system is that a Savior came to serve us by saving us in that system, from that system, to live as a different people, your view will change. He didn't just die to save our skin. That's just the first part. He died that we might serve Him. And I don't know, frankly, from a prophetic standpoint, no idea what He's going to do with America. I am curious that we're in the mess we's in because we have thought so highly of ourselves and we worship ourselves as little gods. What I want, what I think, what I believe, what I know, my way, I, me, my, my vision, my passion, my ideas, my happiness, my hopes, my dreams. It needs to be his life for him. Your life is not your own. You were bought at a price. Don't tell anyone. But go and do what I told you to do. You know, if you and I had him for coffee, I'd be afraid what he'd tell me. Would you?
Would you really want to look the Savior square in the eye and ask him a question that you think you want the answer to? The good news is he loves you. He's not mad at you. He's not disgusted by you. He paid for all that. But if you live this life merely, if I live it merely to placate my pains, my longings, and my desires, what a fool I have been. It's not my own. I'm a steward of the hours and days he gives me, as are you. Do you live for your Savior or do you live for yourself? It's really that basic. The announcement was made. The prophecy occurred. He was identified as God's son. He's going to prove it again and again, and people still won't believe. It says the people came out to him. The people came out to him. I was reading that this week, and I thought, you know, people aren't coming to Jesus anymore. Not in America. They had nothing to do with Jesus anymore. I got a letter yesterday from a friend of mine who's with uh, Far Eastern Broadcasting, and they were in Korea last week. 4,900 military were baptized in the Korean army. 4,900 were baptized. People are coming to Jesus in other places. They're not coming to Jesus anymore in America, it seems like. I'm not discouraged by it. Just an observation. He's the same. Those who come to him find redemption. Those to come to him find forgiveness. Those to come to him find help. Those who do it on their own become narcissistic, cynical, placating, self-absorbed, all about me. Is that unfair? Did he save you to save your skin? Or that you and I might serve him as Savior? Father, we do love you. We want to love you well. We don't want to be motivated by guilt or shame, but by your word and your spirit and others around us helping us to be transformed into what we are to be. Invigorate our hearts and minds that aligning our life with you brings more happiness, more satisfaction, more delight than anything the world would offer. Help us from being self-deluded and deceived that bigger, better, newer, more will make us happy. But that by aligning ourselves with your word, your spirit, and your people, we can find great joy, a joy the world doesn't understand, confidence the world will never understand, and a hope that we live for you, not merely ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.